You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the history of the Second World War. On this episode of our Spanish Civil War interview series, I was joined by Jessica Thorne to discuss the treatment and experiences of prisoners during the Civil War and after. Discussing prisoners during a civil war is always interesting because their experiences are often quite different than what is experienced by more traditional prisoners of war. There was a political dimension for why they were imprisoned during the war and then why they were kept in prisons after the war was over, and we discussed that dimension and the consequences of it during this interview. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spanish Civil War interview series. Today, I'm here with Jess Thorne, a PhD researcher with a special emphasis on anarchist prisoners in post-Civil War Spain. Jess, how's it going today? Um, yeah, it's, it's going okay. I mean, um, two weeks into lockdown 2.0, um, which is, I'm kind of feeling the pinch now. It was kind of, it was a novel, a bit of a novelty. I mean, it's terrifying, but it was a novelty back in April or so it was kind of warm um now it's it's cold and damp um and between those periods of time I've also moved on to a barge which is you know it's not like the warmest place (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh, 2020 continues to be a a real humdinger of a year I think it's a good way to describe it Uh, but we're here to talk about uh sort of Prisoners in post-Civil War Spain. Uh, So I'll start off with this question. Um, So what would morph into the prison system of Francoist Spain had its roots in the Civil War? So what were conditions like for prisoners during the war? And were there any differences between those captured uh, sort of in a military context versus those that were arrested behind the lines? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's it's probably important to start briefly with the kind with the political aspirations of early francoism and why from the beginning prison you know was such a key tool for the francoist side and perhaps we should begin by saying that um you know wars are never just about the occupation of a geographical national territory that they're, they're always about social reconfiguration um and, and franco's military rebels who you know initiated the coup back back in July 1936, you know, saw themselves as defenders of an old Spain. So that was a Spain of, you know, conservative Catholic customs, feudal class relations, uh, rigid gender norms, 
and uh, a wounded but actually a still governing colonial mentality um, which resulted from you know the loss of Spanish colonies in the Americas. I mean as some scholars have argued that ultimately the civil war was driven by conflicting visions of what post-imperial Spain could be. Um, so this military and colonial co context is really important and it's important because those on the receiving end of Francoist repression, you know, in its prisons and in its concentration camps, would become the exact target of what French poet and politician Aime Césaire described as colonialism come home. Now he was talking about the rise of fascism sort of in continental Europe and specifically about more about the Nazi regime. Um, and Spain obviously remained neutral during the First World War. It's quite, you know, it was it's quite different to those other examples of fascism and continental Europe. But the makeshift prison system that was constructed by the Francoist side during the Civil War, you know, a war triggered by the officers of Spain's colonial army of Africa, I think it perfectly embodied Cezanne's thesis. And, you know, Franco's system of justice was a system of military retribution. It operated within the framework, language and, and mindset of a colonial occupation, except, you know, those rounded up in the concentration camps weren't, you know, colonial subjects. They were Spanish citizens, you know, al aligned with the, with the Republic. Um, so, I mean, by the end of the Civil War, there, there were around 180 concentration camps in Spain. Um, and that's if we, you know, consider other more makeshift camps that were in operation at the time. Um, and the conditions inside these camps and, and various kind of labor battalions, um, penal detachments were, you know, absolutely abysmal. Um, and the results, results for this, for, for many of those in the prison population were, were fatal. Um, many in the camps were subject to extrajudicial murder, i.e. they were just like simply dragged out and shot. Uh, others, you know, thousands perished from starvation. Uh, many internees became, um, the victims also of, of tuberculosis and, and you know very few of those in the in these like very tough conditions survived that um, in terms of distinctions between those captured in a military context and then you know civilians arrested behind the lines there really wasn't any kind of, of, of mean, meaningful divergence in terms of treatment um, and I guess that's what makes the Spanish Civil War an, an interesting case um, I mean during the the hotter period of repression, there were, you know, there were summary executions of both civilians and military personnel. And, and once the, you know, more organised so-called cold repression took root through, you know, like military tribunals and whatnot, then everything really just depended on, on the investigations of your past. Um, but, the, but the important thing to grasp here is that Francoism was at war with its own society. And so its progenitors saw no meaningful distinctions between you know, those that were aligned with the Republic, whether they were, you know, at the military level or the civilian level, they were both, you know, the enemy within. So, so you mentioned uh, forced labor as part of what was happening. Uh, was that a pretty large factor for prisoners during and after the war? Yeah, I mean, um, forced labor was, was significant during the Civil War. It was, I mean, it became absolutely integral to sort of post-Civil War reconstruction. Um, it was kind of, it was wrapped up in this kind of national Catholic language of, of like penance um, and atonement. Um, and, and, you know, the, de the, the defeated would have to suffer 
and you know exploit themselves uh to basically rebuild the country that uh the francoist rebels you know sort of suggested that that they had destroyed when in fact obviously you know they were the ones that initiated a military coup um so yeah um, yeah i mean so the, the system of, of, of forced labor was absolutely integral to the franco dictatorship and it continued you know for, for decades after the civil war um you know uh, qu quite a few historians kind of put they'll, they'll kind of highlight 1947 as like being the beginning of the end of the kind of concentration camp model which is which is true it is it is, it is true i mean they're not, they're not wrong but um forced labor continues well after that i mean if you think of like the most famous um example which some of your listeners may be aware of because it's been in the news recently um sort of in the last year is the mausoleum that was built for franco the the, the valley of the fallen um that took 18 years to construct um and i think it involved somewhere around like twenty thousand um prisoners constructing that um and many of them died in the process uh just out of you know malnutrition and, and starvation and exhaustion um but they were also involved in kind of you know really important um kind of national infrastructure projects huge irrigate irrigation projects um and they were also leased out to various kind of private companies some of which you know, are still in existence today and haven't really had a, any kind of reckoning with uh, the processes by which, you know, they've gained the wealth they have, they have today. Um, um, so when the Civil War ended, how did these prisons and camps sort of transition into the post-war period? Uh, was there a consolidation, an effort to make them sort of more permanent? Mm, I mean, I could give you that there's a kind of short answer to this. I mean, I would argue that, that the prison system never fully transi transitions to like a peacetime carceral system. Um, obviously, there was an effort to become less dependent on concentration camps, particularly after, after 1945, um, for reasons that are quite obvious, not least of which, you know, was the alignment of, of Western Europe, um, the reconstruction of Western Europe and you know, concentration camps entered the kind of European imaginary as like a dividing line between sort of democracies and dictatorships. Uh, so there was an effort, uh, at least a kind of, yeah, an outward effort for the, the Franco regime to kind of become less reliant on these things. I think they were aware that, you know, they were going to receive outside criticism for that. Um, but, you know, none of this was driven by a, a kind of humanitarian concern or anything. Um, and, and prisoners continued to be mobilised uh, by the militarised penal colony service, which was a state body that would remain in operation up until 1959. Um, I think it's worth saying that you know the concentration camps by sort of you know 1939-1940 were vastly overcrowded um, to the point where they were going to start to impinge on like effective forms of state building for the regime. Um, so at the start of 1940, across like the various jails, camps and, and, and labor battalions, there were close to, scholars think, one million prisoners in the system, which is you know, a, a national population of, of something like 27, 28 million is kind of 
huge. I mean, completely unprecedented in Spain. Um, and, and this situation was just not sustainable for a regime that wanted to establish its, its fundamentalist dream of, of total social control. Because, I mean, whilst the concentration camps and labour battalions were miserable, um, they did afford prisoners more opportunities to escape. And so, for example, uh, convicts like, this is an anarchist who I've been reading a lot about recently, who I'm finding quite uh, fascinating and endearing, um, and quite heartening in these dark times, actually, um, is uh, Cipriano Damiano Gonzalez. Uh, he was um, a big cause for concern for the, the prison and security services. And the reason why I want to like briefly just discuss this story is because, you know, whilst it, it's incredibly heartening, um, it's actually not particularly remarkable. Um, in fact, you know, he's representative of many kind of fugitive prisoners at the time. He was arrested um, in Alicante in, in, in 1939. Um, and for the next decade afterwards, he basically traveled around in this like, revolving journey between concentration camps, penal colonies and, and prison. Now, in these years of transit, uh, he managed to escape not just, just like once or twice, but nine times. Um, and after one of his successful breakouts, he even managed to take up a kind of state bureaucratic position um, in, and, uh, under a false identity, of course, um, at a public works commission in Cadiz. Um, and he would like use this uh, clandestine outpost to give kind of false identity documents to other uh, fugitives on the run basically um so i mean initially the state's response to this kind of burgeoning crisis not that it was considering it as a social crisis but a crisis of, of, the, of the state and, and its control uh was to you know relocate uh prisoners from the camps to smaller prisons and they did so on overcrowded trains often without water or food many of them died on the journey to the prisons um and if they didn't Many of them arrived in extremely ill health and often brought with them diseases. So what happened then is you'd have these huge fatal epidemics in the prison. I mean, some scholars estimate that at least 140,000 died in prison in the years between 1939 and 1944. So what we see in the early 1940s is, is certainly a, a slight drop off in terms of prison population numbers. But this is because of the extremely high death rates in the prison, not because the regime is evolving towards a peacetime model. Um, I mean, where the regime actually tries to claim it has moved away from the wartime model is in relation to this completely bogus parole system that um, it, it ends up um, establishing. Um, and, and this parole system effectively gave Franco's historic social base the power to, to grant and withdraw a prisoner's release. They could also re-arrest them as well at any period. Um, but within this system, the church, the army, um, and, and sort of the old clientelist networks of, of landowners uh, remained permanently mobilised uh, by the regime, you know, politically and, and socially. Um, and these parole boards, they would include the prison director, the head of prison operations, uh, the prison doctor, um, and the prison chaplain. Now, the board would draw up a report on the basis of the, of the prisoner's willingness to collaborate with the regime, basically. And this report would then be sent to a committee of local kind of client groups, which would include the mayor, 
often a phalangist, who, you know, a member of Spain's only permitted fascist party, um, the police chief um, and the parish priest. Now, these local boards also oversaw the private lives of, of prisoners' families, who they viewed with the same amount of contempt. Um, and if an application was denied by the local board, which was often frequent, then the prison board would subject prisoners to internal exile by basically relocating them to another part of the country, often you know, hundreds of miles away from the family networks. So the appearance of this regulated parole system, which many of your listeners would probably associate with you know, criminal justice systems under liberal democracies, belied the fact that this was about you know, extending control outside of the prison walls and extending the prison as a space, kind of, um, in this quite kind of, I guess, like Foucauldian way. Um, so for many of the prisoners at the receiving end of this like really cruel and repressive bureaucracy, this was felt as the continuation of the war by other means. Um, and these incursions by the regime on ex-prisoners occurred, you know, day in and day out. I mean, any economic activity, any migratory movements from province to, to province, um, even applications for a driving license, all of these things required the permission the local dignitaries and they were often embittered and, and still hadn't got over the kind of the experience of the 1930s um so i mean for me this is important because it really challenges um sort of really those really truncated views of, of the franco dictatorship which you see in a lot of anglo-american historic historiography which suggests that after the battlefield war francoism evolved into this kind of just like, like a mere authoritarian regime like all the totalitarian fascist influences just kind of like faded away naturally kind of thing. Um, whereas, you know, I think if you look at the prison system, you can see there's constant mobilization here. Um, it's certainly not, it certainly hasn't demobilized as a society at this point. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In the years after 1938, 1939, like there's all these people in these prisons and like, what was the end goal of this imprisonment? Was it just like, okay, you, you were an enemy. We're going to continue your punishment until you die <laughs> for a lot of, for a lot of them. Or was there like political re-education happening with the idea of, you know, letting them re-enter society? Um, what was the end goal? I mean, yeah, so you're right. I mean, despite there being, you know, really high mortality rates in, in Franco's prisons, there, there, was an, there was an end goal. Um, and, you know, prisons were, in, the, in the, the legal language of the regime, they were designated as these sites of spiritual redemption. Um, and in, in Franco's own words, literally his own words, uh, not the most compelling or articulate writer, I have to say. <laughs> He says, um, there were two types of prisoners. There were, and you know, this is a direct quote, compulsive criminals with no possible redemption within the human order, and those, those capable of sincere repentance, therefore redeemable and adaptable to the social life of patriotism. Um, so those charged on, and he makes no concession here for common and political prisoners. It's a really important point to make publicly. The Franco regime says it, it doesn't have any political prisoners, it just has a criminal population. Um, but I mean, internally, the prison, the prison regime was there was it was organi organized sort of through these political common prisoner divides. And those charged on Republican um, sort of they were called like blood crimes. Um, they were they were to be held in um, these central prisons for social political crimes where um, supposedly they could receive a greater range of treatment um, and, and these separate prisons were to be used as sites for what the regime called moral education which would be achieved through uh, catechetical labour and religious instruction so in short spiritual redemption would be achieved through work work and religious instruction were the two key components of political re-education um, indeed work was was punishment for the disruption of Spain's traditional class hierarchies during the 1930s. This is what it was, you know, this is what it was all about. In the re regime's view, these prisoners had essentially brought their suffering on themselves by daring to disrupt the traditional social order, an order which was now being, you know, brutally renovated and mythologized by the regime as sacred. It was, a, you know, it's a sacred order now, you could not challenge it. So, I mean, at a fundamental level, this was ideological. It was about making sure that the social struggles waged by the urban and rural working classes during the years of the Republic would never re-emerge again. And, you know, on that front, it was tragically successful. Um, I mean, the revolutionary demands of workers would not and have not reached the same scale uh, or force since, I guess. Um, but in the, in the short term, you know, forced labour brought the regime enormous economic benefits. 
um, for decades after the Civil War, you know, prisoners, prisoners were released out to these, these private companies, as I already mentioned, um, and, and these various public work commissions. Um, what little wages the prisoner did receive, and they did receive some, they did receive sort of meagre wages. I think it was around half the wage of a free worker, but it could be, it could be possibly even less than that. Um, well, most of that would be deducted to finance the prison system and pay for like maintenance accommodation costs. Of course, of course. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess what a really interesting example in terms of like how the Franco regime envisioned uh, punishment and, and sort of its, its criminological thinking was it constructed this, this massive new prison in. Um, uh, 1944-1945 on the outskirts of, outskirts of Madrid uh, called Carabanchal and uh, it was a mixture it, 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 it was kind of like a classic panopticon structure you know modelled off um, Jeremy Bentham's panopticon um, but it had this like really curious mixture of kind of like high Catholic imagery um, and a kind of Greco-Roman neoclassicist style I mean, it's almost the sort of thing you could see appearing in, in kind of Mussolini's Italy. Um, and again, that was, that was something where, you know, prisoners worked on constructing that as well. Um, so, I mean, the, the end goal in terms of like, how, why was work sort of a route for redemption? Well, obviously it was kind of like, it was gratuitous for the state. Um, but also it was to kind of reconfigure the defeated he was seen as like kind of a feckless working class poor as these kind of like disciplined kind of militarized workers that's what they wanted to do but they did make a distinction slightly well quite importantly between you know political prisoners and common prisoners many of the common prisoners were actually seen as like redeemable they were redeemable kind of criminals some of the political prisoners were not, they just weren't seen as redeemable and therefore they were denied work, which made their experience in prison really hard because they were just getting nothing and they relied totally on outside support. And if they didn't have that, then they would really, you know, really, really struggle to survive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there was the, the, the end goal was to reform the prisoner, but to do so politically, you know. And. So, so you mentioned a few times about sort of international reaction to this. So, so obviously in, in 1939, uh, an event starts that diverts some attention to other events in Europe. Um, but what was the sort of international response to the conditions experienced by these prisoners in Spain? Like, did they even really know what was happening outside of Spain? Mm, it's interesting. So, I mean, a lot of my work has focused on international response to the situation of political prisoners in Spain more after the Second World War but I have come across uh, British diplomatic reports uh, sort of during the Second World War which you know do, they do suggest that they were perfectly aware of the extent to which you know the Franco regime was borrowing its criminological and, and sort of penitentiary thinking from its from sort of Nazi Germany um, and just in case any of the listeners don't know Franco's political police who were the equivalent of the british special branch i guess were actually they were trained physically trained by the gestapo um and then later by the cia after that um so 
I mean, immediately after the war, after, I mean, the Second World War, the, the Franco regime had to deal, it did have to deal with various diplomatic and trade embargoes. It was incredibly isolated at this point. Um, but from 1947 onwards, the international position of the regime started to shift and it started to shift rapidly and dramatically. Um, in, in 1951, embargoes ended uh, almost across the board. It, a year later, Spain was admitted to um, UNESCO. And in 1953, the regime received key financial and, and military support from the US, um, which was known as the Madrid Pact. In fact, once Franco received that, um, I, I'm not sure if it was directly at the time or a few years later, but he was quoted saying, at last, I have won the civil war. So he, you know, being accepted into like the new democratic order was like him, you know, saying, okay, I'm here to stay. I'm not going, I'm not going to be, you know, militarily overthrown or anything. Um, so this closer allied alignment um, with Franco was driven by, you know, classic, this classic kind of interwar fears of Bolshevism that had re-emerged with the onset of the Cold War. Um, and, and subsequent fears of Soviet expansion had a real devastating impact on, on the anti-Franco opposition. Um, I mean, it's often missed in the post-war sort of European historiography, but I mean, we could really talk about Spain sort of in the post-1945 period, um, or particularly by sort of the mid-1950s um, as a kind of Western client, client regime at this period. But there is actually a really interesting case, which we could talk about, of where international scrutiny was applied to Franco's prisons. So in 1952, um, this sort of NGO-type body uh, called the International Commission Against Concentration Camp Regimes, uh, which had been in, it, it basically been set up by uh, this sort of ex-Trotskyist in, in France called David Rousseau. Um, and he, you know, had, was basically trying to investigate uh, the situation in Soviet Russia and, and the vast, you know, constellation of gulag labour camps there. But they decided also to conduct on-site investigations um, in Spain. Um, and they visited, I think it was 17 prisons, I think like yeah, four or five um, labour sort of um, labour battalions and one militarised penal colony. So it's quite comprehensive. It was a comprehensive um, sort of survey. Um, now, the commission was formed basically of like Nazi camp survivors and ex-resistors. Um, and with the Nazi SS camp setting the benchmark, the purpose of the Spanish visit was to determine whether Franco's castle system constituted a concentrationary regime. Um, now, publicly, this commission viewed their task of investigating camp systems around the world as an apolitical one. But from the beginning, the overarching focus of the commission was on exposing similarities between Hitler's atrocities and, as I, yeah, as I said, the gulag labour camps in, in Soviet Russia. Um, but this commission came to really ambivalent conclusions about Franco's prisons. So the report stated that between 1938 and 1939, um, and 1945 to 1946, Franco's camp system could be compared with the German regime. Um, but on the question of whether Franco's prisons constituted a concentrationary regime in 1952, the commission presented a negative verdict. 
and it said no case reproduce the conditions obtaining in Hitler's concentration camps and in the better institutions the conditions were the same as may be found in well-developed penitentiary systems devised for ordinary criminals. Now yeah, there's a discussion to be had here about all the various kinds of stagecraft the prison authorities were able to put in place before the commission arrived uh, which I found you know it was kind of extensive based on the letters that prisoners subsequently smuggled out when they heard about the the kind of conclusions of the report um, and I mean it wasn't it wasn't kind of it didn't let the, the Franco regime off the hook saying it wasn't as bad as the Nazi concentration camps <laughs> it's a very it's, low bar yeah it's a very low bar isn't it yeah um but uh you know, the assessment of the, the post-1948 prison system allowed the regime to justify its pre-1945 state of affairs as this like necessary state of emergency because it's a war situation. Um, and in the end, the, the, the commission report really ran out of momentum and it was kind of hamstrung by its own metric, i.e., you know, the rigid comparison with the Nazi camps, which, you know, as I said, is, is a pretty poor threshold for assessing state violence. Um, I mean, I mean, other concerns, interestingly, such as the use of forced labour, which were brought up in the report, um, I mean, they were kind of controversial because they opened the door to embarrassing claims on the issue of work brigade conscription in Western colonies. So no one kind of wanted to pursue this. There wasn't like the kind of the political climate to pursue this at this, at this period. I mean, the Cold War really squandered any kind of international meaningful response. Yeah, it, it sounds a lot like uh, Franco and his regime was able to hide behind the I really hate communists sort of shield <laughs> during yeah, that period. I mean, yeah, I mean, he was publicly quite happy. I mean, the regime were publicly quite happy to say that, you know, you know we, we have like Marx, they, we call them like Marxist hordes in our prison system. And they were like, we're like a key ally in the fight against international <laughs> communism. Um, so yeah, I mean, they were yeah, yeah, they used the opportunity, you know, in, incredibly strategically, and, you know, were quite successful. So um, the Franco regime lasts lasts until 1975. Was there any sort of evolution of the situation within the prison system, um, sort of up to that point? Mm, I mean, I think what underwent the biggest change in the decades after the Civil War was really the composition of the prison population and its size. Um, so the statistics are incredibly sketchy, but what we do see, at least up until the late 1960s, 1970s, is the decline of political prisoners and a surge of so-called so common criminals entering the system. Um, but I mean, in the harsh autarkic world of early Francoism, like crimes of a social, common or political nature were often like, really impossible to distinguish. Which was, and it wasn't helped by the Franco regime claiming it had you know, no political prisoners at all. Um, and what we see in Spain is, you know, in the, in the 1950s, is an, you know, an economic system which, which froze wage levels, it, it rationed food at, at bare subsistence levels, you know, uprooted rural laborers, all whilst dramatically increasing the cost of living. Um, many Spaniards had no choice, actually, but to take the law into their own hands if they wanted to survive. Um, and a black market economy flourished in post-war Spain. Um, its commanding heights, its regime-connected clientels were, were protected, of course, but at the same time, subsistence-related crimes, so over like my, uh, usually over incredibly minor items of property or access to food, 
constituted most of the petty criminal charges during the 1940s and into the 1950s. I mean, in 1957, according to an official report, which, as I said, are sketchy and, and usually kind of, of, of kind of vast underestimates of how many prisons there actually were, um, out of a total prison population of just over 18,000, there were over 7,000 prisoners arrested and charged for property crimes. Now, this wasn't only a result of you know the economic rupture caused by the war i mean autarky so and what obviously um, what i mean by that is a you know, a fully closed national economy an isolationist economy was also used politically by the franco dictatorship with with hunger and poverty for poorer sectors of the population but we you know it also meant substantial numbers among the urban sort of lower middle classes as well becoming the means by which the state taught those it deemed hostile sectors of the population the lessons of their defeat and it really pushed them to the margins of political life and into prison. Now in 1959 the Franco regime abandons autarky and it adopts what is called the stabilisation plan and this opens up Spain to the free market and foreign investment and commerce. And from then on, what we see in Spain is actually a very early form. I always find this quite interesting because, you know, so many uh, scholars always kind of look towards the example of Chile and Allende um, and the kind of repression over there as like that, that kind of experiment in like neoliberalism. But actually, what we see in Spain from like 50, 1959 onwards is a, is a very early form of, of neoliberal development. Now, some historians imply that as a result of this economic shift, the enduring fascist influences underpinning Francoism were just kind of shafted by the liberal, liberalizing motives of the free market. But as soon as you like kind of peel back this kind of consumerist gloss of the dictatorship in the 60s, it just doesn't match the empirical reality on the ground. It's still an incredibly uh, violent and difficult situation for, for, for those that are kind of constitute the defeated sectors in Spain. I mean, in the early 1960s, Franco's vertical and state-controlled trade unions did devolve, did devolve some workplace wa like wage agreements which came as part of this kind of 1958 um, law of collective bargaining but they were purely an economistic measure in the service of structural adjustment um, and you know when workers threatened to break out of the regime's vertical arrangements as they did in sort of 67-68 um, echoing you know the political mobilization of workers elsewhere in Europe at the time particularly France neighboring France the Franco regime you know panicked and, and declared a state of emergency and it's like right we need to domesticate the working class again they've got out of hand and it's like right we're in a state of war again um, so in fact from and also from the regime's declaration of a state of exception in 1969 until the death of Franco in November 1975 more deaths occurred in strikes and protest actions than throughout the whole preceding part of the 1960s. And I mean, inside the prisons themselves, there was just no overhaul in terms of uh, staff personnel. Many were still sort of drawn from quarters of the army that were dominated by the Falange, uh, you know, Spain's fascist and only permissive political party. Um, one former pris prison officer actually, who worked in Carabanchel throughout most of the 1970s, uh, he was interviewed recently uh, for a film and he said something like kind of it's kind of just really chilling actually and it just shows how Francoism had pervaded 
uh, internal prison culture from the top down. And he said, um, he says, and I'm, I'm quoting this, we were kind of a militarized squad. In fact, when we started, they gave us a weapon. We couldn't technically use it inside the prison, but nevertheless, we had it. In fact, we started to have problems when we refused to take the weapon. They started to call us Democrats, communists, socialists. That was the way to insult us. So, you know, it just, I mean, I kind of want to re-emphasize this point, I guess I've made quite a lot sort of throughout discussing this with you, is that you know, this wasn't a kind of stuffy, politically demobilized autocracy, as you know, some historians have implied. It's visible and brutal origins were always there. Um, and it's, it's fascist influences endured and, you know, in its death throes in these sort of latter years of the 1970s, you know, it violently came to the surface. Thank you for joining me here to talk about uh, this, this topic. It's been really interesting. Great. Yeah, it's, it's, I've enjoyed it. Um, it's uh, been a useful tool for me, I think. It's a, it's a kind of duly novel experience because um, <laughs> I haven't done a podcast before and I haven't done a podcast on a boat. So <laughs> there we go.